Hi everybody, welcome today. I am joined by Dr. Anna Howarth, who is a psychologist, a childhood health psychologist, a behavioral scientist, a pain psychologist, and I feel like we could come up with a couple of different titles for you depending on the day, huh? Yes, absolutely. Just throw in like interchange them a little behavioral psychologist or coach, throw coaching if you want. Lecturer. <laughs> Whatever you like. Oh yeah, lecturing too. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. So pain reason, trainer. <laughs> yeah. The reason why I'm really excited to talk to you is because, you know, you have all this experience in pain and pain research and lecturing and management. And I think that's definitely something that other people need to know about. Right. And I think I, I'm glad you're excited to talk to me, but I think why I think this is important and why what I do can be important is because I have all that stuff you just said, but I'm actually a pain patient who does everything wrong too. Like that's why I think it's important for me to speak up whenever I can. Cause I'm like, I, I know all this stuff and I still get it wrong myself. I still don't do all the right stuff myself. So that's why I have a lot of empathy and time for people who are treating pain, people who are in pain, people who are trying to learn about pain. <laughs> And I think it definitely shows because obviously the, um, this came across in your lectures that I was a student in. So I should say the reason how we know each other is because you used to lecture at BCom. Um, yes, and you were a star you, student. Yeah. yeah, and very kindly passed on the teaching baton. Oh, I was so grateful. I know it was brilliant. I mean, because of your psych background, alongside it, like everything, you know, the osteopathy, it's, it just makes you a prime candidate, especially when trying to do psychology for medical students and physical and manual therapy students. So you were an absolute gem. I kind of wish I had more of anatomy physiology background when I was teaching and you kind of have it all. So yeah, that was quite a privilege to pass it on to you. I was very pleased when you were going to be teaching when I found out. It definitely had big shoes to fill. So, very kind a little nervous <laughs> and i thought gosh are they going to enjoy this as much as i did because i love those lectures on a friday morning and it was early but i was like no you're getting up this is the one lecture oh, God. that i used to look forward to because i actually signed up to become because they're the only osteopathic school that has a psychology um, element to it they are and I, that's unbelievable to me when i started teaching there and found that out i was like are you kidding but yeah, no, it's unbelievable. So I guess there was, there was also a lot of pushback too for people attending them. So it's really nice to hear you actually enjoy coming to them. They did let us do whatever we wanted, obviously, as long as it was in the curriculum. But I realized we're not teaching people who are interested in psychology at all. Like nobody, everyone's like, do I really have to do this? Because I'm trying to fix somebody's broken back within my, you know, with my training on my, in the next session I have to do. So it was a real challenge. And I was just grateful that everyone was like, uh, let's okay let's learn a bit they, they actually got interested in some things and then I was like well let's just talk about the really interesting stuff first and foremost and ignore all the boring stuff which if you're gonna do a degree in psychology you got to learn the boring stuff too so I'm glad that some of that translated well um, and I just thought osteopaths or anyone working with patients just needs the the most important relevant patient stuff like human connection uh, communication stuff right away and I guess it's working out then, what we did. We just kind of slowly turned it around and made it as relevant as possible. Absolutely, and you had such a good team around you as well. Um, wow, yeah, like the best colleague ever when I got Bianca. I was like, yes. Uh, basically, she's a health psychologist too in, in her background. So for me, health psychologists are definitely quite a lot different than the clinical and the counseling because all we do is focus on physical health and the psychology of that. So. Um, it's hard. It's hard when you work with psychologists who don't have that background. Whereas Bianca, whew, 
great. We just immediately agreed on everything and just hit the ground running. So it was so much fun. Yeah, and I definitely yeah. want to get her on this as well soon. So oh, she's going to be awesome. Because, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, she talks as quickly as I do. So <laughs> well, I said this to earlier. I do feel like in those lectures, I was in an episode of the Gilmore Girls. I don't know if you've ever It's possible. That. Yep. Yes. Yes, it's true. I know. I know. Because I would just go off on one and I'd be like, but this still has to do with this slide, I swear. Like there's this one time in band camp and then I have to stop and go, okay, maybe not a story for today. And other times it would work because it was a story for that day, but just it wasn't scripted and it wasn't on my slide. So a lot of ad hoc sort of stuff. And that's what I appreciated. It just felt very fresh. It felt very real and it didn't feel like we were being talked down to at all. Well, that's the one thing I did like the BCom students on average already had a degree or experience in life. So it was awesome to teach them. I have to say that's, that was a lot of fun because then I'm talking to adults and they don't need to hear about Freud's opinion on um, psychology from day one. They need to go, what do we know now about why, why is psychology important now? What can it actually show us to do when I go home to speak to my spouse tonight or when I'm in, in with a patient? How does it apply at all? And being able to talk to everyone like that, because everyone was an adult, pretty much, pretty much. Um, and I probably was the most immature at times as the <laughs> lecturer. Then I thought that worked well. Like, if, you know, we all took turns kind of, because there's such a variety of backgrounds, such a rich variety of backgrounds. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And like you said, the whole psychological element is, is embedded into what we do as yeah. physical therapists, as osteopaths, therapists, whoever's listening to that you yeah. can't interact with another person without it having a psychological impact. I know. I mean, it's like whether you're having an interaction at a grocery store or literally being a, like a, an osteopath in with your patient, it's the same techniques, effective communication, connection, uh, learning how to negotiate. There's a whole book written on there, isn't it, by that CIA guy or something. Negotiation. Everything is a negotiation. If you just understand that from day dot, and that's psychology. Uh, it's certainly not biology, it's literally psychology. So I think it's 100% necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and so your background is very much centered around pain and pain research. Um, yeah, how did you get into that? Um, oh, good question. And the answer is because I'm a pain patient. Um, I got the lucky experience of having chronic pain start when I was about 23, 24. We don't really know why, and it was pretty mild to begin with, but then thanks to like how everything can go wrong, it all did. Uh, like the worst possible patient doctor experiences, the most in it, like I had no education about pain. I'd never broken a bone or sprained an ankle, like at all. I was always just kind of healthy as a horse. So to be cut down by pain, which they couldn't really know why I had it, just sciatica, good old sciatica, which, you know, some people have sciatica. It's like a little bit of a niggle and it's a bit annoying. I would go from standing to like literally almost falling over in pain and not being able to stand up and walk. And they couldn't really, I mean, it, it came on slowly and they let me kickbox, uh, work full time throughout it, sitting for too long and then waitressing for too long when sitting became too bad. And all of these fumblings resulted in like eventually they're like, we're going to give you surgery. So now we know you should not do that. But going through the surgery in another country, because I originally came from Canada and I've been living in the UK since I was 19. So I was adjusted to the system, but I was also pretty helpless. Like I didn't really know what was expected and what would be the norm. I got surgery within eight months after almost two years of kind of like not walking and having a lot of pain and not knowing what to do. So I was lucky. 
But in the end, I was kind of spat out the other end of the healthcare system with no real rehab. I got a piece of paper with some like leg exercises and lower back exercises to go home with post back surgery um, at the age of 25 and then just struggled. So, and slowly with time, like I studied psychology after that. And then I was like, I want to know more. So I did a master's in health psychology, which I basically focused entirely on pain and lower back pain. I did my dissertation on lower back pain because I kind of wanted to know what the hell happened. Like, what was that? Because I had a friend I used to kickbox with and she worked like Monday to Friday, two long hours at the desk. So inevitably, if it was just a mechanical thing, we both should have had the same amount of pain and both should have had the same injury, but we didn't. So that really got me thinking. And I remember my master's at the time, the thing that stood out the most was the biggest predictor of lower chronic lower back pain was low job satisfaction. Like what? I'm sorry. It wasn't sitting at a desk too long. It wasn't uh, kickboxing or running or doing stuff that is bad for your lower back. It was low job satisfaction. That was the biggest predictor in a regressional analysis of all these different other things like having back pain in the family or having a really stressful job, which, or a really manual hard labor job, that wasn't as big a predictor as low job satisfaction, which made me think maybe we're going about this wrong then. Like maybe, you know, maybe they don't know what they're doing, the people who are dealing with this. And it, as it turns out, they don't. Cause you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't the first degree that revealed that it was later on more studying. And then my PhD, when I was like, oh, pain science is still under development. And in the meanwhile, everyone's running around doing medicine based on what we do know, which is a lot of it's inaccurate, um, a lot of it's misleading and a lot of it's, you know, doing the best we can, but really screwing it up. And now I'm like, every time I see these horrible sort of misunderstandings of pain and pain management from the medical side, not even the patients from medicine and people who actually work with pain management, then I'm like, oh, you're creating another patient for me. Thanks. I needed a job for the next 20 years. You've just made another chronic pain patient within less than six months. You've taken somebody who could have gotten better and you've managed to do all these little things, whether it be not managing their expectations or feeding their fear beliefs or giving them a diagnosis such as you have a slip disc and that's why you have pain or we're going to give you surgery because we've done an MRI and we see a, a bulging disc and we're going to cut that out for you and make sure it stops your pain and you're like uh nope that's not what the science says so all of those things I can see them happening now but it's taken a long time 20 years of being a chronic pain patient and I yes I think like most people I went to school to study my own shit <laughs> my own my own problem yeah, um, as most psychologists do. As most psychologists do. And a lot of, I mean, I think, I don't know why osteos and physios go to school. That's a good question. Psychologically, what is it? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Hmm? A, lot of, a lot of us get injured. Well, that's just it. And I mean, so I figured, yeah, I got injured. I want to know what the heck. And then I just, I thought I would uncover the real reasons. Instead, I uncovered that no one knows what they're doing. And all the structures we have out there in the medical system for dealing with pain management is pretty screwed up, pretty divided, not together yet, and very seldom is it running smoothly and at full function. Um, I, I understand why though, because it is, it's cross-disciplinary, it's, it's misunderstood. Um, yeah, so I could go on forever about that, but I won't, I'll just. <laughs> so what is it, what was it, what changed for you in terms of managing your own pain that really made that difference in your, in your, in your journey, let's say? 
That is such a good question. And it reminds me of when I was doing a lecture at BCom and I thought I would try something new, which is like when I started at BCom, I'd had a, like the very beginning, I'd had a back flare up that was so bad. I was like living on tramadol that week, which is not the worst thing you can live on, but it really took a lot out of me. And it means you really shouldn't drive. <laughs> it's hard to concentrate. It feels a bit like being stoned for me. So I was on tramadol. I was writing my lecture slides and starting this new position at BCom. And I just went in the first day and I was like, Great. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really excited. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And I just said, I've written these slides while on tramadol because I'm technically a pain patient myself. And so I'm here to talk to you about pain and psychology and managing, you know, your psychology when you're a patient. So you might as well ask me any questions you want because I'm kind of the living walking example. And, and everyone was really nice about it. And I went through my lecture and everything like that. But it just kind of made me rethink what what we could do in a classroom when you're having this lived experience at the same time. So going back to what was the original question now? So what changed <laughs> in your journey? Your oh yeah. So then based on that, I opened the floor up in another lecture and said, you guys, I'm I'm a classic pain patient here who's done everything wrong and knows how to do things better now and tries to do better and I still fail and I teach you guys and sometimes I think you get totally what I'm talking about especially if you've had an injury yourself and other times I think you look at me blankly and go what so I said why don't you ask me all the questions you want to ask your patients this today like just ask away and I'll give you the total brutal honest answer which is no I don't do my exercises when I go home and yes I lie to you when I come back in because I feel and then I tell you it feels better when it doesn't sometimes so I genuinely don't want to displease you it's it's instinctive it's natural like it's I wish I didn't do it I know it's not for my own good but that's how it happens I become a patient as soon as I'm in a room with you guys so ask me everything you think is too rude to ask a patient and one of the questions is what you just said and they said what changed for you because I now I spent five years teaching rock climbing I rock climb I, I do lots of things now I'm so much better than I was obviously 15 years ago and the sad answer is I went through surgery Surgery, like most things, if you look at placebo, for instance, the bigger the intervention and the more invasive it is, the more your brain takes on board that is good. So I had surgery, leg pain and sciatica, it, it, apparently it's quite helpful actually. It's one of the few reasons you might have back surgery. If they see something on a scan and you have leg pain, not lower back pain, but leg pain, it does relieve some. The problem is we know now that when you do surgery, it temporarily relieves it more often than not, and then it comes back. So now we have, failed uh, surgery syndrome in the UK because so many times we've done a microdisectomy or a laminectomy and it just comes back. Mine came back on the other side first and then on the original side. So I have two weak legs now that alternate between two different sorts of manifestations of pain in different areas. And um, I think that did give me pain relief for a full year though. I had no muscle tone left. I couldn't bend over to put my own socks on. I have to sit down and put socks or underwear on for about two to three years because I, I had no rehab and I was so scared and I didn't really understand how I'd gotten to where I'd gotten to. Nobody really explained it to me. They just said, there's something we can cut. So we want to cut it. And when they do that, because it wasn't like, um, you can do it with it. What's it called when it's like a needle? That's really small, micro like something. What it, was it? Surgery or something. Yeah, but I didn't get that. I got the one when they cut you open. It's about two inches um, and they, and that's not the bad bit. The bad bit is they have to go right in because your spinal cord is right in the middle of you, which you don't really realize because you can feel little bits on your back. So you think it's there more than your tummy. No, right inside. And the main injury post-surgery that you're going to feel the pain is because they have to pull the muscles back like this 
and like open it up so they can go in and cut and burn whatever else they want to take out. So that pulling of the muscles back is so harmful. They describe it pre-surgery, which we know now is bad, as being kicked in the back by a horse or stepped on by an elephant. That's how they describe the experience and the bruising and the pain you're going to feel post-surgery. So they just jack you up in drugs. You don't necessarily feel it, but that's the damage they describe to you that's going to be done from that surgery, which of course we know now doesn't fix anything. There's evidence for that, solid evidence. And that's what kickstarted though. I went, oh, my pain kind of went away for a while. I had other pain, I had other problems, but that pain went away. And unfortunately, that's what gave me enough mind space uh, to start seeking out information and seeking out help. I worked at a medical center. There was a physio there who's still to this day my physio. And he, he said, I would have never sent you to surgery. It would have taken a long time. Um, and from now on, I'll never let you get back to where you were before. It doesn't have to happen. You don't have to be ever in that position again. And I guess that kind of changed me in the end. But it was this invasive, horrible situation of having surgery, which literally stopped the pain pattern that I was in. And I can't advise that for anyone. There was no, I mean, my PhD was on mindfulness for pain management, and that's not what saved my ass. Nothing saved my ass. It was a, a tumbling of events and just like a complete screw up that resulted in slowly but surely me prying my way back. I would have to say the most hopeful thing I ever heard was the physio saying, you will never have to be in the same place you were before which is I just needed hope and I needed someone to reassure me whether that was true or not. Like, let's just say he was lying. Let's just say he was like, Oh Jesus, what are we going to do with this person? She's like, so like, so screwed up now. Um, but he, his reassurance, um, and positivity and just like, I would say, what do we call it now? Conservative optimism was hundred percent changed my mind and gave me, like, I thought, I still feel like crap and I'm still scared and I still don't know what the future will hold if I'll ever properly do things again or be able to wear heels or walk for very long or do anything risky like running for a bus. But he slowly, you know, changed my mind and won me over. Having been through the surgery, knowing that that's not a possibility, a lot of people are like, surgery will fix me. We've tried everything else. Just give me the surgery. And you're like, no. But again, convincing people, changing their minds, that's what's the key thing. And I, my mind was changed by doing the absolute worst possible wrong thing and then finding out that that didn't work. So I had to find something else. This is just really not an experience that I can tell anyone else to go through. <laughs> There's no one thing. But I must say, find someone you trust. That was the main thing. Somebody I trusted for the first time when they told me they could help me. Because if you don't believe your practitioner can help you, whoever they are, whatever role they're playing, you're kind of screwed. And the research shows that. They show it, it doesn't help the patient if they actually don't think the doctor thinks they can get better or their physio, their osteo or their pain consultant. So yeah, that's a lot. It's a big yeah. answer for that one question, sorry. No, it's really fascinating because as, as an osteopath and a manual practitioner, you know, how honest would you have preferred your, the physiotherapist, for example, to be with you? Like, well, the honest truth is none of us know. So if we don't know how I got my pack pain and you don't know how the average chronic pain patient with no trauma, no specific disease or illness, no systemic illness has their pain and why they have the pain, then you are actually inaccurate and wrong if you say this will most likely never change or get better or will progressively get worse. Because unless they have MS or some form, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or something, or we don't know. 
And even those, you know, relapsing or remitting sort of thing. So if you tell a fibromyalgic or a chronic lower back pain patient that like, because you think you're being honest with them about the prognosis not being very good, that's inaccurate. So I would say be honest in the fact that we actually don't know. There's just as much chance that things can get worse and then get better or vice versa, or that things can get worse and sorry, get better and stay better. Like I am a walking example of somebody who, because of good management and because I'm lucky, I think too, and met the right people at the right time, I do rock climb. I've even started a little run walking thing, which I'm not supposed to run because it's just silly, but I love running. I miss it. So I'm doing it in little teeny, teeny, like two minutes run, three minutes walk for no more than 30 minutes. That's what I mean by running. But they said I could never do that before. They said, you'll never, you can do a lot of things. And I have the scans that show the the spinal cord that looked like beautiful disc, 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 like in, like all these little bits, and then a big black cloud near my L4, L5 that showed just a mess. And they're like, oh, that's why we're going in. I'm like, I don't know what it would show now, but I'm rock climbing. So, you know, and I wasn't walking back then, but I'm pretty sure the imaging won't match because it doesn't, it, the imaging doesn't correlate. So I think as a practitioner, be honest in that you genuinely 100% based on all the evidence we have and based on all your previous experience, don't know which way it will go. It is very much down to how the patient manages things and themselves and, and the, the amount of effort they put into it. And then just mindset, all of that. So yeah, I think you should be honest, but be honest in the fact that you don't know. <laughs> That's probably not the answer everyone wants to hear. <laughs> I think because we are practitioners and a lot of people who listen to this might be, it's so important to hear that from a patient's perspective, because sometimes we forget. Yeah, it's, and I mean, I totally get, totally get it. Um, so does my cat, apparently. So I, I think when I become the lecturer and I'm not the student, for instance, I switch right over into that and I forget what it's like to be a student. And while I was studying for my PhD, I was also lecturing full time or a lot of the time. So I think the practitioner patient thing is too. And when you're on the practitioner side, I have to say, I mean, chronic pain patients are the worst. We are the worst. I hate them. We are so bad. Even when I'm interviewing them and doing focus groups, I'm like, oh my God, I know this story. You can't keep saying that. When I'm the patient, I'm like, just listen to me. You don't know what you're doing. And I want to scream at the practitioners that, you know, you're not asking the right questions or you're not listening to me, or I'm just going to say yes and go home because I'm too scared, even though I'm paying for this. So I think more of those. And when I've sat in rooms and I was doing my research with all the physios, for instance, or the manual therapists, the conversations we'd have about the patients would be along the lines of, um, we've got one for you because they're difficult, basically. I'm like, you guys are not supposed to say that. But that's, that's what it comes down to. And chronic pain patients are difficult. The whole chronic pain is difficult. So I get it, but it be, does become, I think we become very defensive on both sides very quickly. And I would too, if I was in the shoes of the practitioner, giving wonderful, helpful, supportive advice and constantly watching my patients shoot it down, ignore it, manipulate it, twist it, or just be bummed out and depressed and not very proactive or not very empowered. I'm like, I'm doing everything to empower you. So it's, I get it. But um, I guess, I think we just need to keep having those conversations because otherwise people keep going away and nothing's happened and there's no therapeutic relationship. So there's no therapy. So people don't get better. Yeah. And one of the things I remember um, when I used to work as an assistant psychologist um, is I'd be, I'd have, I'd have a caseload and, you know, we'd have these MDT meetings and we're like, okay, we're going to give you this individual to work with. They're a little difficult. And so you almost build up this picture before you even go see them. Yeah. And, 
I go to their homes because it was some, you know, we deliver therapy in their homes. Um, and I'd get there and I'm like, I have no idea why people think you're, I would never say this to a person, of course, but yeah, there's no basis on you being a difficult patient. Yeah. So, and all that does is, so it builds these boundaries and these blocks as yeah. a therapist going into the situation and you're almost anticipating behavior. And it's this whole effect. It's, yeah. it's and if you're not aware of it, because what you've just said is you, you've reported that you had awareness of this. Can you imagine all the other ones that don't? They literally go on, okay, now I've got this person. They're very difficult with that. They're very defensive about this. I must be aware that they're very sensitive about this. I've been pre-warned. And then they just go in. They have no thoughts about what that person might be have gone through or what they're really not sensitive about anymore. Like I love it when people, this is my favorite, when people say I was adopted. They're like, oh, is that really difficult being adopted? And they'll go in and or the back pain stuff and, and they don't know what to respond to. Oh, you had surgery and you were like crippled almost. And I'm like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of things. And if we're going to be blunt, let's say it's my childhood. Out of my childhood, being adopted was not a problem. There was other stuff going on that was much bigger. And as soon as they learn that, they're like, oh, then you must be very, I'm like, no, I'm okay. Still hold them job, went to school, have loving relationships, you know, difficult ones too. But so there's all these assumptions we do. And I must say, I've, yeah, I, I thought it would be different when I got into psychology. I thought people, but I see it constantly being done. So I can only imagine any manual therapist who, like, if they are difficult. Patients are not there because they're happy and healthy. They're there because they're tired. They're sick and then they're in pain. And, and I, don't think we, I don't think we tell medical receptionists that enough. I don't think we tell medical administrators. And I don't think we tell physicians and manual therapists, by the way, you are never going to be dealing with happy-go-lucky people. These are not rich people that have come to you for optimal health. They have come to you because there's something so wrong and so annoying or so bad that they've actually taken time off work to go see you. And that's what we forget, I think. And that's, yeah. <laughs> and I almost wish there was more psychology training within most of these sort of patient dealing sectors. Well, I think if you're dealing with patients, you should have psych 101 because you're you're most of the time you're not dealing with the patient's illness. If you were, we'd just be looking at on a screen. We'd be all be Dr. House. We wouldn't actually talk to the patient much. We'd poke and prod and have these great conversations about what, you know, what assholes they are and why are they just selfish or do they have like chronic fatigue? that could be done behind closed doors but no you're spending your whole time sitting in front of a person and i'd like to say if we just remember to treat them like we would our mother our brother our sister or our kids maybe not kids um but you know someone we cared about then we'd all be okay but it's i, I offering therapeutic medical help is very tiring and draining and i don't think we do half as not prep, prep that we should like i can handle an hour of pain coaching and I'm drained. I'm literally drained. So how you guys go in and you touch bodies, these people with these weird knick-knacky things and habits and clenchiness and uncomfortableness and then just weird body things. And then you're supposed to help them and actually address them as a human being, but you're also calculating their physiology and what's going on. This is incredible. And you basically need Psych 101 to manage yourself so you don't go insane and hate everyone and everything. And then also Psych 101 so you can still remember that these are human beings and they need to be treated like human beings because that's really easy to forget because we that's why people don't like the labeling too i think and i'm like but we need the labeling for the diagnosis and treatment but we're all humans and that's it needs to be someone must be pretty bad off to go down and strip to their underwear in front of another human being and let them poke and prod them in a room even though they're a complete stranger because it's vulnerable and oh, beyond and yeah 
I'm so glad you said that because often, you know, you see however many patients, it could be two, you could be just as exhausted. I sometimes see 12, 14, and yeah. I'm done. I'm done for the week and it's only a Monday. Yeah, and I don't know how you guys do it. Being able to take care of yourself, I think, is something that not taught. No, it's Instagram, not taught. And everything, but, um, I've, and I've asked really, really successful or really what they, they look like they're happy practitioners. Like, how do you do it? Because I know they've been doing it for like 15, 20 years or maybe 25, but some of them come out the other end and they're able to crack a few jokes and be okay with it. Even though I know they've just been basically a life coach to like 15 people with pain back to back and probably not able to change much or do much, but somehow they've made, when I've worked in medical clinics and I watch those patients walk out happier than from another practitioner. I'm kind of like, well, I wonder what the magic touch here is. And it is literally their heads, like their mindsets and how they speak to them um, because it makes the patient feel better. And then when the patient feels better, you feel better, but also they know how to withdraw. And I've asked people different tricks. And one of them who's like my favorite woo-woo friend, uh, kinesiologist or blah, 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 nutritional therapist, a little bit spiritual and stuff. And she's like, I literally like do an energy wipe afterwards. And it's, um, it sounds woo-woo and it's ridiculous, but it's a ritual and our brains are hardwired for rituals. We love it. We need them. Um, I think as a practitioner working these days, all you need to do is go to the sink and do like an extra wash between clients and just give it like you're washing off the last client's crap, all their mental stuff, all the stuff you want to scream at them, but you can't just wash it away, start fresh and whatever that ritual is. And I think I think that would be helpful. We don't teach that. We just expect you guys to be robots. And then we get mad at you when you treat us like robots. So it's a really bad cycle, which if you're lucky, I think the practitioners that have done well, they've managed for their own survival, have managed to find a way to maintain their humanity, not have compassion fatigue. And that makes the patients better. I mean, I think all practitioners should get together and maybe gripe, work it out, and then like offload a lot of the stress and things they want to say, and then have their own little small things that make them feel better too. Because when you're in a group and you feel like you want to hate all patients, it's okay. It's better than just get it out. Cause you don't, you actually have spent a lot of time and money going to school to help people in this situation. So it's unfair that you don't get taught how to look after yourself. And the fact that it's not always, it's not fun. It can be amazing and a meaningful work, but it's very seldom just fun, right? Like when is it like, Oh, I had a great time. There was balloons and we had cake. No, that's not going to happen. That's not how medicine works. You are going to go through hell and back. And if you can find some meaning in it and go, that was worthwhile. That's gonna, that's why we want. So yeah, I wish they would teach that a bit more. Um, and I know it's trickling down into medical school slowly, but surely in different ways, but you tell the average consultant to teach like a brief mindfulness meditation break or to have a timeout or to remember not to beat themselves up in between. That's not what we do. And it's not what's endorsed on a regular basis. Normally say, beat yourself up if you've harmed a patient. Use that mistake to berate yourself so much you never make the same mistake again. That's our training methodology for our practitioners. And we wonder why they have a bad reputation for having poor bedside manners. And by poor bedside manners, I'm being super nice right now. I'm ignoring the people that are, they do stuff that any psychologist would tell you. If you don't want your patient to listen to you, please speak like this and say these words. That happens a lot. So yeah. yeah, I have a lot of opinions on that, sorry. <laughs> I love it, you make the, yeah, I love it. Um, and one of the things you talked about was mindfulness and I remember um, Googling you, and <laughs> all your research came up and which is fascinating to read. Um, for sleeping purposes, right? When you need to get to bed at night and you have insomnia, for sure. 
absolutely. Never, because I delivered mindfulness on wards when I worked at an adult awesome. and inpatient wards. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Yeah. How did that go? You know what? It was, um, I mostly dealt with um, elderly patients and yep. initially I was resistant. I'm not going to lie. Um, no, yeah. fair enough. I was. I was like, my are you kidding me? My supervisor, you know, talked me through it. I read loads. I did lots of training. Um, and then I was delivering it. And halfway through, I'm like, what even is this really? Like, because yeah. there's different types. There's, there was, you know, the visualizations. We, at one point, we were eating a grape. Yep. So I was I've like, used chocolate. You know. <laughs> I recommend chocolate. When I practiced it, I used chocolate yeah. with my supervisor. Hell yeah. Grapes. I had, I had a chronic pain patient once talk about that. She's like, we did the first hour of a 12 week mind or an eight week mindfulness course. She's the first hour they made us eat a grape and spend like 20 minutes doing that. She said, I walked out. I was like, don't use grapes. The chocolate will keep them even if it's a completely irrelevant exercise in their minds. Anyway, sorry, continue though. So you did that with them. Um, I did that with them and it took a couple of weeks for me to get into the groove. And I think it was more me feeling like I was delivering something that was effective. Um, and so once I realized, oh, I know what I'm doing, I'm qualified to be here, I'm good at this, yeah. that's what changed for me. And then my uh -huh. delivery felt more cohesive. I felt like I was being able to listen to them and not just talk at them because it's so easy just to sprout off this little script that you have going on mentally when yeah. you deliver these, this mindfulness session. And I was watching them, I was listening to them and that made, that changed me completely. How did uh, this should be written up? What you've done? How did they respond? What did you? What's your key takeaways from that? I'm really curious. I was able to be more reflective after the sessions. Wow! And before I was like, okay, great, we're done, off you go. <laughs> and afterwards, I would spend almost as much time reflecting on the session with them awesome. than I did delivering the session, mm -hmm. and that changed for me. Yeah, it gets interesting, eh? And it's. For me, I'm not an advocate of any one particular instrument or method, like mindfulness, for instance. But I love, I love the stuff that when you're doing a mindfulness exercise, if you want to go into the psychology of it, you're doing like sort of evidence-based psychological interventions in there. So there's evidence for it now. It's been done for thousands of years in different ways and forms. But it's, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but this time and attention and awareness training and the idea of it even is interesting. And human beings are curious. And if you can get them curious when they're sick, when they're in a rough place, it, it does lift everything and change it. It modulates, doesn't it? So that's awesome. Absolutely. It's, and it's just, a, I mean, even if you just get into that conversation, it opens a conversation that would have never happened before until you've done this wacky grape exercise with people. So cool. And the reason why I asked you about that was because mm -hmm. you wrote a, a paper on it. And I yep. about this. Well, so what I did was um, I love the idea of the eight work mindfulness course. I did it myself, um, the traditional mindfulness based uh, stress reduction course, which was loads of evidence behind it. It's fantastic. It's interesting. It's great. I did it when I wasn't in pain, though, which is another thing. So I don't tell chronic pain patients to go out and do that. I wouldn't recommend anyone do something they don't want to do when they're already in pain. It saps your willpower. It saps your, you know, ability to take care of yourself in other ways. So learning something new that's not immediately quite helpful is well, the research shows it's not helpful. It's not good. It's counter, it's counteractive, counterproductive. So I did all that when I was in a good place and I went, ah, okay. I, I don't meditate every day. I mean, you, during the course you meditate for like an hour to two hours a day. It's so intense. 
post the course, I kind of backed off because I was getting up at like 5.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. to fit it into my day, which was already 7 a.m. to midnight with three jobs and studying full time. So the takeaway from that was all those breathing exercises and just stopping and counting to 10 or doing three deep breaths when dealing with something horrible is what I do to this day now when I climb, when I freak out, when I have a horrible email from work that's like, la, 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 and I've just gone like every sort of threat nerve in my body is just going, oh my God, this is horrible. I've totally screwed up or my boss hates me or something like that. The breathing, because there's nothing else to do. And that's what it taught me when things get really bad. You step back and you just breathe, which sounds really stupid unless you get a lot of conditioning and a lot of trying it out. Like that's what it's. So I'm, I'm really impressed with that. So I did my PhD on brief mindfulness stuff, like a brief mindfulness intervention for pain management, because I thought no one has time for this eight week crap. It's too much. Pain patients are already like being pushed and pulled. They're being given nothing. But I don't know anyone that suffered any harm by taking 10 to 15 minutes out and just doing some breathing or listening to something nice or just doing a guided visualization. And I focus on the body scan because it's easy and it's not woo-woo. It's not spiritual. It's not mindfulness. It's not religious. It is literally what people will do in hospital settings when they do, what is it, muscle activation stuff during physio or something. And it's really good to go how is my body doing today, which is they, what they try to teach you in self-management for injuries and rehabilitation. And I thought you just start at your toes and you just kind of go through with your eyes closed, sitting like super comfortable or lying down, whatever you want. And you just go through and you do this check-in. If you have the sort of guided um, audio one, it helps because then you're like, it, you just listen to it and follow it and do what it says or don't do it. It doesn't matter. It's 15 minutes time out where you're supposed to be chilled. And on a very basic level for pain management, you've got at least two minutes of distraction in there. When somebody's telling you like to breathe into your shoulders and soften on the out breaths, you're like, what the hell? But you're distracted. That's distraction. Um, the words softening or breathing out and letting go of any sort of muscle tension is good instruction. Whether you can follow or not, it doesn't matter. Hearing these things is helpful. And so that was my goal was just to give it out to anyone who wanted to try on the NHS, who was basically a musculoskeletal pain patient. Or actually we took fibromyalgics. It was just anyone who had non-cancer pain. Um, and it was just to be easy and to do at home because nobody gives you help when you're home. And most of the time you're a patient, you're at home by yourself or you're out, you're trying to do groceries. And I just said to people, if you know, you have a flare up or you're just feeling really bad, just put the audio on and see if it makes any difference. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. You've taken 15 minutes time out. And most of these people are off work. They are alone and they're isolated. So if anything, I thought, well, if you don't like listening to it, you don't have to, but let's try it for a week or two. And we'll come back in four weeks and see if you've continued. Um, some people did it every day. The, the most interesting thing I find out of all of my research, how many years? Oh my God. Cause we did focus groups at first to try out different lengths and different tones to see. And I got the most neutral words possible. So people weren't listening to whale music and they weren't being told they didn't have any chimes because chimes can irritate some people. We didn't use my accent cause we don't need a North American accent. If you're a bunch of English people going, no, we got a nice English neutral ish accent and just did a basic body scan toes up to the head bit of breathing job done but because it's, it was a pilot rct we had a control group and we had to give them something and i had to go in front of an ethics board this was really interesting to me and justify what i would give chronic pain patients in the nhs as a control that wasn't totally kind of uh ruining or wasting their time basically and i said well i'm going to give them um part of an audiobook like a really neutral one. I wanted to do Lord of the Rings, but apparently that was too emotive and exciting. So previous researchers used it. 
I know, like seriously, because it's really slow at the start, but once you get into it, you're like, what's going to happen? So I wasn't allowed to use that because we didn't want to like excite them. We wanted people just to be listening to something to do. So we found the most boring book in the world and then found an updated version of it. And it was something about English, the history of English villages, <laughs> which was actually really well written. And it starts off by like, you know, that freeway you see near Liverpool, that actually used to be blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is semi-interesting. And people who liked history loved it. But for everyone else, uh, the results of my study comparing the control group, comparing to the brief mindfulness audio, they were roughly even. I mean, the mindfulness did edge out. I have no idea why necessarily, because it was only 15 minutes and it was after one month. Did you find blah, blah, blah. So the numbers showed not a statistically significant difference, but they were, you know, it was trending towards the mindfulness definitely at higher scores, but not statistically. Um, everyone improved statistically after one month on scores of like, how, you know, self-efficacy um, on different things like responding to stress, like just really small things. And it's only one month, right? We're not expecting to change the planet. Some people have gotten worse with their actual pain experience, which had nothing to do. Some people were then told they were going to get surgery. So they kind of gave up on everything because they were just waiting for surgery then, not, you know, but it was an overall pleasant experience. And I found that what people reported back because I told them afterwards, well, actually we had two groups. One was trying mindfulness and one was just trying this relaxation stuff with the audio. And they the audio relaxation, they loved it. And I think the most important takeaway was that everyone was told and prescribed to take 15 minutes time out for themselves. And I, that was the prescription. It was like, okay, turn your phone off for 15 minutes. Whenever you do this audio, tell your kids, your husband, your wife, or whoever, you're just going to go into the other room. And for 15 minutes, you need quiet time because it's just for you. Cause you have to do it. Cause you signed up to do this study and it's just for you. And they loved it. They were like, yeah, it, just, it was just great. And I even told my husband, I'm not cooking dinner yet. I'm going to make this in the other room. And I'm like, okay, I've just instigated some sort of feminist willpower, like struggle in this dynamic of their relationship. But um, she was happy. Uh, others said they did stuff like this when they went to, to their mosque or their church and they had praying time. I'm like, that's awesome. You're already doing essentially a mindfulness practice of your own, but try this one and see what you think. And then they would do it in the park or they could do it in other places, not just in these predestined assembly places with other people on a, on a Sunday morning or a Thursday evening or whatever. So that was good. It taught them how to do it on their own. Um, but yeah, that was it. Anything that tells a pain patient to take 15 minutes time out for themselves is helpful. And I think that it, that's, it's self-care, which is self-management. So that's why I was so focused on good self-management for pain patients. Now it's all about learning how to look after yourself and, and not know, and knowing that it's not self-indulgent. Cause a lot of these people are like, I don't have time. I have twins. I have a hip injury. I have a full-time job still, which I'm hanging on by the, you know, da -da -da -da. I'm like, take the 15 minutes. Um, and then they would do it for themselves later on. And of course, everyone who listened to the relaxation audio, they got the mindfulness stuff. And I'm like, well, do you want to try these ones? Cause there's some exercises. You just listen to them, but they're guided and they're supposed to be really good. So I would get everyone into mindfulness anyway, if they were willing to. That just demonstrates how one easy and accessible it is to do within. You know, we're all really busy. We've all we've never got enough time or enough sleep yeah. or anything else. Yeah, and it shows that you can do it anytime, and it's still going to help. And I just said, worst case scenario, it's so boring, you fall asleep, and that's okay. And I'm like, do you know what sleep is to a pain patient, right? Like you pay good time and money 
to get sleep if you're a pain patient. And this puts some people to sleep. Like I'm out, if I lie down for 15 minutes and do breathing, I fall asleep. Like I'm a horrible meditator, which is what I found out when I went and did my studying. I was like, wow, 45 minutes lying on my back. There's no way I make it past 10 minutes. I'm out like a light. And a lot of people who never sleep were like, wow, I think I just fell asleep. I'm like, great, all good, no problem. You don't have to do the body scan then. Just get 15 minutes sleep because as a pain patient, that is golden. And you often pay money and take drugs to get that sleep. So I, this is a win-win. And I mean, the, the results and the writing of the paper wasn't the most significant thing. It was doing a presentation to my department at St. George's and the doctor, the GP in the group going, hey, um, can I do this in my practice right now? And I was like, yeah, for sure. I have some spare stuff and you can recommend it everyone. And I know where there's free downloads. And you can choose whether you want 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Tell your patients just to do this like every day or, you know, three times a week if they can and get them to give it a go and ask them to judge themselves. Like, does it feel different after one week or what do they, what do they notice? That's all you have to do. Um, entirely, like also Headspace does all the own apps and the feedback, like any, all these great apps out there now that do it for free almost, almost, but it's really easy. So that was important because I thought there's somebody who wants to use it now. And she just doesn't care if I've written a paper or not. She doesn't care if it's, she just listened to me and what I had found so far and was like, yeah, I'm in. Because we have so little for stressed, anxious, tired, burnt out patients who are doing everything else they should do, taking the medication they should, they're trying to go and do their manual therapies. They're trying to eat right. All while, like, like all while living with pain and having no pleasure anymore because their pain doesn't allow them to do anything that used to give them pleasure. So. And you mentioned sleep, and I think that's such an important thing because as an osteopath, I will always ask patients about the length of the sleep that they're getting, the quality of the sleep, because that's when you heal, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. the whole stick of osteopathy is you allow the body to heal itself. I do very little. I might move something or I mm -hmm. might, you know, you know, make you feel better, but essentially you're healing because you're doing it yourself. I'm not doing anything for you, essentially. That's good you ask them though too, because a lot of people don't. And it's one of the things I ask when I'm pain coaching or pain training, I'm like, and how's your sleep? Because if you're not getting sleep, it doesn't matter what medication you get or what magic words I find to use or how well you understand pain. If you're not sleeping, I mean, you're screwed. And it is literally a, pre, like it is defined as a actual method of torture, sleep deprivation in any torture guidelines in the world. It's a method of torture. So the fact that we don't check in on that is incredible and then yes the type 2 immune system pops up and only does its work when you're getting that the right amount of right amount of deep sleep right so incredible um for pe people that will spend all this time and money on pain management and pain patterns and then not ask how you sleep so i'm glad you do i'm hoping more people do with time most of the self-management stuff encourages people to look at it and they call it sleep hygiene which i think is almost offensive <laughs> i'm like sleep hygiene you just medicalize sleeping well like great well done um so yeah, no, that's really, really important. And sometimes it's just getting, I mean, for me, I'm super picky about beds now and mattresses. I also, my trick was I sleep, I used to sleep on my stomach, which you can't do if you have a lower back pain more often than not, because it kind of ends up doing that. So then you have to sleep in your back, which I can't, which also arches your back. I don't lie flat on anything because that lower back, it just pulls it, which no one tells you. No one, no one told me that ever. I had to read it in a book and then go, oh, structurally, that makes sense. You are like... When you're lying supine um and then also pillow between the legs and knees so when you lie on your side all these women with hips like i'm definitely twisted so keeping that spine kind of just as straight as possible as straight as is natural for you with the least amount of pressure 
I'm like, well, find a place to put a pillow and then use it. And then I, you know, if you sleep with three pillows forever for the rest of your life, if that stops your back pain, that's good. Better than surgery, <laughs> better than anything really. So, but small things like that and, and just experimenting with it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, you talked about sort of like listening to this audio sort of um, mindfulness um, body scan. And I remember being introduced to something like that way back when I used to do yoga when I was like 14, 13, 14, 15 anyway. And one of the, the yoga instructors actually created this um, audio. It was on a cassette. This is back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gen Zs are not going to understand what a cassette is. Um, but a I thing. remember saying that and I still have it. And I oh, still wow. So, and that's why I love this idea of the body scan is so accessible. I mean, I did the research. They said they use it at the beginning of most long-term mindfulness courses because it's so accessible. In gym class in small town Canada, we did a 30 second like countdown sort of thing, like, and going through the body. We all laid out in the grass after like our volleyball practice and our teacher made us do this. He was not a yoga teacher, but they just said it's, it was like guided visualization for elite and optimal physical um, sports and stuff. So elite athletes have been doing this for decades. People have been doing all these sort of guided visualizations, like technically a body scan. And I'm so glad that, yeah, no, that's really good to hear because that's exactly why I wanted to do it with the patients. I thought if they do nothing else, they're scanning their body. I mean, to be honest, it's good to know too, if like you noticing more knee pain that day, you might take it easy on your knee and go, okay, today's not the day to play tennis because that niggle is still there and you don't do it until you do your body scan. Or you just do the body scan and it tells your body, like you get in the habit or it tells your body to shut down and relax. Oh, I'm doing the body scan. So you're like, you put it on automatically, you know, you're going to have 15 minutes of time out and quiet. And that's just good for the brain and the body too. I mean, it's a win-win. And again, worst case scenario, you're bored for 15 minutes. And it's creating this body awareness that I think sometimes we can create this disassociation because it's like, yeah. this is my pain. This is yeah. my body but somehow you never really connect the two in a way that feels, okay, and this is how I manage it. And this is how I tune into my body. And that way I know, you know, not to play volleyball that day. Or, I mean, I play yeah. volleyball. I should probably not advocate playing volleyball if you're an osteopath because I've broken so many fingers and you can't see right now, but I have a stress fracture in my foot. So. No. Why did you do that? How did you get that? Volleyball, just oh, jumping geez. badly, as in not jumping, but landing badly. Using See, and people say rock climbing is dangerous. I'm like, I'm sorry. No, no. It's like, like tennis and volleyball and all these zigzaggy, hardcore jumping sports where you hit the ground. Basketball, volleyball. Hard on the body, high impact. It's rock climbing is on ropes. You don't hit the ground. And it's, unless you're bouldering, bouldering's evil. I don't recommend bouldering to anyone. But otherwise, and you're on all four limbs. It's weight-bearing activity that just strengthens you, and you never just jumping up and down. Okay, that's my lecture on rock climbing. We'll save the world. You've convinced me. I'm switching. You need to switch 100%. I definitely wanted to do back climbing, rock climbing for people with lower back pain because it's, oh, there's one thing that did save me a bit because I got better with my physio. And then he told me, that's how I started rock climbing, by the way, before I was teaching, because he told me to go use the Versa Climber at the gym which is, it's, I don't know if you know what that is. It's a machine, it's on a slight slant 
it's killer. It's kind of come back to be popular because it burns twice the calories as a running machine because it's such a hardcore cardio. But you move up and down with your arms and then your legs do the same thing in a climbing motion and it strengthens the paraspinal muscles, which are hard to isolate with a lot of other exercises or machines. And it's mimicking climbing movement. I did this at my posh fancy gym where I worked part-time to pay for school. Um, and it was right next to a climbing wall. And I was like, they're doing the real thing. So I asked my physio, can I try the real climbing thing in a class? He's like, oh yeah, for sure. That's what the machine is mimicking. It's safe. Like you're not going to fall. Are you? I'm like, well, no, I'm on a rope. They don't drop you. Like it's, that's the rule. They shouldn't drop you. They get sued. Um, and if you let go, you just sit on a rope. So I did that and it changed my life because I did something after my back pain and after my surgery that I had never done beforehand. So it distracted me because you're very distracted when you're hanging on for dear life and your mind onto a rock face. You don't think, oh no, I probably shouldn't do that movement because it's bad for my lower back. You're like, holy shit, how do I not let go and die? Even though you're not going to die and you're totally safe and you've got a harness on, but the fear kicks in really quick. Once you're two meters off the ground, like it doesn't take much, like two meters and you're like, <gasps> but it distracted me. It got me out of my old movement pattern. So any guarding and sort of pain behavior, you know, stuff I had going on and habits were kicked right out the door because I had never experienced this sort of physical movement before. And I had to use my whole body, not just my lower back, but everything to hang on for dear life and then move. And I was distracted. And when you get to the top for the first time, it, it changed my self-confidence for the rest of my life. I did something that I had never done prior to my back injury that I would have never imagined I could do. And I did it post-surgery, post-injury and with an imperfect, broken, damaged body. So yeah, rock I mean, climbing to save your lower back pain, hundred percent. I feel like there should be a movement coming because what a better, what a powerful way to break that fear avoidance cycle. Yeah, it see. is because yeah. you don't, I mean, I still limp sometimes unconsciously my, when I'm tired, but I still climb like, and that doesn't, you will not see me limping when I climb, like not that you can limp, but you know what I mean? Like you won't see that deficit. It just goes out the door. There's things I'm scared of doing certain movements of more aggressive <laughs> intermediate climbing. But even then it's, um, I feel a hundred percent stronger since starting to climb. It gave me so much confidence back because I just thought I was broken forever. And this is like at 25, 26, I thought, okay, I don't get to do stuff now. That's okay. I had a good run. Like I was really athletic when I was younger. What's it? But the pain scared me so much. I would definitely not do stuff because of the pain or the fear of the pain coming back. That scared, that scares me more than death. Death is fine because you're done. Living with pain is the, by far the scariest thing I know. That's pretty <laughs> That's a whole different topic. We won't yeah, get it is. It just is. It put the fear of like, I don't fear a God. I fear pain. That's what it taught me. Um, and that's it. Cause I mean, your brains work that way. I get it. And it's, it's, you can spend a lot of time doing it, but I catch myself and I'll go into a pain, like a proper, what we would refer to as a pain catastrophizing sort of state, just a total freak out when I have a, like a little twinge or I do my back seizes up again. And it's, I, I bounce back a lot quicker, but man, the brain, holy crow, it remembers. And it just every possible fear, like and when you're 25 and 26 and you have pain like that, to imagine ever having a family and carrying a child yourself because you're a female and you would be the one to be pregnant, that was like, no, I'm not like, why? No, people get back pain when they get pregnant. So why would I ever risk? So it cut off so many areas of my life that I hadn't imagined at that age. Um, of course, now you just know, you do what you want. Plus I was adopted, I want to adopt, so it's fine. But, um, but seriously, it makes you, I know many women have gone, I don't think I could ever get pregnant after I've been through the back pain I have. Just carrying something in that awkward position 
at the front of your body. It's not natural. It's imbalanced. We know pregnant women suffer. The body tries to adjust with tendons loosening up and everything like that. It doesn't make up for the fact that you should be never carrying stuff here when you have a weakened lower back, right? So it's tricky. And even post giving birth, you know, you've got this little baby that just gets heavier. Yeah. And, you know, and then you pop the baby on the hip and I've seen it yeah. so many times and, and. Oh, it's it horrendous. Get bigger. If you keep feeding it, it will get bigger. And then they want uppy for like five years. They want uppy. I went to a wedding and there was a two-year-old that took to me and she's super cute and super sweet and she just clung to my leg, but she needed uppy. So I spent a day and a half at a wedding doing uppy with this two-year-old because it's a big wedding and you, you see the family for two days. Uh, day three, my back went. And I was like, I would have been what, like 31. And I was just like, holy crow. Cause I was carrying a child on my hip without thinking about it. Cause you get used to it. I've raised my brother and sister. So I'm quite used to like little kids being around. Didn't think about it though. Nobody tells you don't put a little kid who's super cute on your hip at a wedding, even though you're helping out and clearly people need help. Cause then you're doing everything else with your hand too. You're still getting stuff ready. And as a, you know, female member of the, the wedding group. So yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Just wait till they're teenagers and they, and they want nothing to do with you. Your gold and your back will be better. I know. And I just think if all teenagers were given like the sack of, of flour and it is taped to their belly, that would be birth control. And then you don't get to take it off. You got to go to the bathroom like that. You got to do gym class like that. You got to do all your cleaning, the bathroom and your room like that. That's birth control right there. I feel like that they should integrate this. Well, to be fair, there is a flour shortage at the moment. So, so maybe not flour. You just bag of sand and rocks. Who cares? Same thing. Uncomfortable and heavy and in the wrong place. Not where you should be carrying weight. That sounds like my, my, my quarantine regime right now. Uncomfortable, heavy, and in all the wrong places. Very. That's fair. It's true. I think many of us can relate. That's and where it's at. <laughs> One of the things you talked about, I remember when I was listening to your lecture, was distinguishing sort of chronic pain and persistent pain and how, you know, a lot of people will use that interchangeably, but the language behind that is... Right. Yes. Um, that is a big fight I had, definitely, because it's, it's, everyone understands chronic pain and it's called that in a lot of places. They started using persistent pain, what, maybe seven or eight years ago? No, maybe 10 now. It started popping up. And it was, I think, by some dudes in Australia... I'm not sure who started it, but it was really annoying. And I was like, well, that just sounds dumb. In the meanwhile, I'm writing my PhD and you're writing and publishing and you know, doing the thesis over you know, your three to four years. Um, and by the time I'd finished, I had not only been convinced, but I realized the only accurate and, and genuine, authentic way to refer to this pain would be to be persistent. Because I say I'm a chronic pain patient, but if you're rock climbing and teaching rock climbing and running around and just being normal, how am I a chronic pain patient? Well, I live with the threat of it coming back and every three to five years it does. And then I remember what it's like not to walk. I remember what it's like to be in so much pain, you just want to die. You can't move and you have to cancel everything and you have to order groceries online for two months because you couldn't carry anything. You can walk then, but then you can't you know, weight bear with anything on your back. So carrying two bags of groceries doesn't work. So that that's the persistence. The chronic is the language. And I, we both know patients, you've told them, and we've heard about patients that have been told about their crumbling spines, disintegrating discs. The chronic is like a, is like a trigger in our brains now because it's in the media so much and it's been used so much within medicine. Now we know chronic means you're screwed forever and most likely will just get worse with time. That's what that translates to more often than not. The research has been done so I believe in using the annoying word persistent because it's accurate and it hopefully it will be less subliminally priming for people in believing that their pain can never change, never get better, and will only get worse. Because chronic means you're broken. Like 
having a chronic illness means that's it forever. Um, whereas pain, we don't know. We don't know why it, it comes on half the time when there's no injury and we don't know why it goes away. Uh, you can put stress in or out and all these other factors. We just don't know and we can't predict. So the chronic I think is more damaging than helpful. Persistent is kind of annoying to say, but I had to go back at the end of writing my thesis and find and replace 1 billion incidences of chronic pain with persistent pain. And I had to change it to update it. And I truly believe in that now. And I try to get it in anywhere where I'm teaching or writing the curriculum or talking about it because my using those words as a person talking about pain does influence others. And hopefully I can influence doctors and physios and osteos and manual therapists in general to use persistent. Is it just persists? And we don't know how long it will persist for. It just has persisted more than it should have. Whereas chronic is like a diagnosis. And that's onto that label. Yeah, they do. And, and that's what they're told. I mean, when, when I tell any manual therapist they've got a chronic pain patient coming in, you're like, oh, you know what that means, right? It means hopeless. It means difficult. It means a nightmare. So what do you think the patients think? What they're thinking in their brains, they know, oh, okay. Especially when they see it on TV with anyone with a chronic syndrome or a chronic illness. They're like, that's it. You have, I mean, diabetes or cardiovascular disease for life. Um, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain half of the pain population out there. I've seen people go from not walking like myself to lead, like running marathons. And I'm not gonna recommend that. And it's not the normal and the average. Many go back to full lives and they're twice as strong because they've learned how to rehab themselves. They're twice as aware. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. We don't hear those stories. We hear about the people that kind of maybe, a lot of stories about pain acceptance and how they just gotten used to being disabled. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> right. These are all just different stories. And, and there's just not enough evidence to tell anyone with your lower back pain, ma'am or sir, you are most likely going to have this prognosis. We just don't have the evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah so. One of the things I thought was really interesting because uh, was that when somebody is introduced to as a chronic pain patient, I almost and I don't know whether it's because of the you know the, the psychological work that I, I I did before, but yeah, I, I get weirdly excited. Not because <laughs> I'm excited because they have pain. Because sure. But because I'm thinking of new ways in which I can break this cycle for them. However, yeah. that they've had this for, I'm like, okay, I'm going to come in with this slightly different approach, you know, mm -hmm. osteopathy, they might not have seen an osteopath before, they might not have seen, done any Pilates before, but I'm going to try something a little different and it's either going to work or it's not, but we're not going to know unless we try. And if you hold on to this label that you've got chronic anything, low back pain, mm -hmm. for example, it's what is this label doing for you? What does it serve? And yeah. do you want to let go of that label? Because some people just don't. They're happy no. because they're getting an intervention. They have a diagnosis, which means a lot of the times they might get funding in certain ways. So you might just get help. Yeah. Exactly. So if it serves a purpose, fair enough. But if you want to try something a little different, mm -hmm. then come see me. And actually, it was one of my questions at interview um, in the NHS, I don't know if I, I'm there, I think I can say that, I don't know, yeah. um, is what would you do with the person, with this, with this patient who keeps being referred to services? And I'm like, well, have you looked at their pain cycle? Have you looked at where this isn't working? Because yeah. sometimes it's the system that just yeah. doesn't work for the individual rather mm -hmm. than the individual working within that system. Yeah. 
No, no, it's so complicated and complex. I was going to say the one thing that's different is not your approach necessarily with your plan. It's your approach that you see and hear about a chronic pain patient that you're going to treat and you get excited and think, what can I do instead of, oh shit, which is a very normal and natural and probably a, a reasonable response to the average chronic pain patient coming through to you in the NHS these days, because it is oh shit. I mean, what are you going to do different that they haven't already tried before? Um, what do you how are you going to hand out the same treatment and diagnosis and get it better? I think the only thing is you have to be really careful with the, the chronic pain patients that are clinging to their label. Um, I think, okay, I think we'll just move the cat over here. Sorry. So chronic pain patients who come with the label, if they're still clinging to it, that's at a certain stage where it's the only thing that's gotten them help and been, sorry, she really wants to contribute to the pain. Let No, baby. Um, the thing is, the label, you can't rip it away from them until they're ready. And I think you know that when you be aware, but I love the idea that you can start implanting ideas that it's chronic is an ebb and flow game with pain. It, it's not a consistent thing because you have those good days. Well, the goal here is maybe to make more good days. And starting with that, I think is really important. And I, I don't think that's a lie. And I don't think it's, it's, it's just remember, patients can remember the last time they had a good spell or a last time, like, and if they can't then go, okay, when was the last time you had a not as bad? Like you really got to work with them and where they're at mentally, don't you? Which is annoying and hard. But yeah, if you can just get them to, to slowly let go of it because it doesn't serve them. And it, I mean, some of them it has served. The only reason they get to see you is if they've been given a diagnosis of chronic pain. Otherwise they don't get manual therapy. They get sent home to take some ibuprofen or a paracetamol and that's it. We don't have the time. It's used, when I started working, when I was working at Guys in St. Thomas's, um, they were, the government had said, like this was years ago, they said, you have to do better than 18 weeks. You can't have anybody waiting longer for a referral for 18 weeks. That was their, their goalpost. And so we were shuffling. Like even if you just get them in, they don't, you just triage them because we were doing a, a back and knee clinic, um, assessment clinic. We would then triage them off with a specialist physiotherapist. We then triage, triage them off to either physio or to a rheumatologist if there's any different indications depending on what they needed. But that was the first time those people saw someone. So by then they were kind of almost like chronic-y, like, cause they hadn't had help and it really kind of dealt in. So they needed that title. Otherwise they didn't get referred to physio. So we're working with a really backward system. And I think, yeah, if you do what you mentioned, which is very gently going, okay, well, fine. Regardless of the label, we want to see if we can change it um, and see how that goes. Yeah. And this is coming back to what you were saying before, because fundamentally you're just treating another human being. Yeah, and that's and it's it's a human being that has had twice the bad time in regards to their medical treatment and care as a cancer patient. Twice the bad time as any other concrete, diagnosable, objectively measurable disease or illness. Twice as bad. Asthma, you would never get questioned. You were never told you're being hysterical um, and you're requiring you're upping your asthma medication. That's ridiculous. You're just stressed out and you're you're embellishing your experience. With that, that would never be a conversation. Every pain patient has been there where the doctors either doubted them, looked at them funny or gone, I don't know if I can do anything. And, and just gone, it can't be that bad. You can see that. You, we can tell when somebody is kind of judging or just judging for showing up. And then to make matters worse, if you're a chronic pain patient or a persistent pain patient, when you're in there, you're not in a good spot. So that's when you'll do stuff like cry for the first time in front of a, in an office in front of a stranger, or you'll get anxious and freaked out. You won't ask the questions, you'll shut down everything goes wrong and then it makes you look worse. And it's mainly because we don't have that diagnosis. 
and everyone says, oh, chronic pain, that's not a diagnosis. Like genuinely, like I, I hear that every day. Right. So yeah. yeah. And would you see a lot of these types of patients when you worked at the Helen Bamba Foundation? Okay, well that was, oh, that was a fun game. So you're dealing, this is another problem I have, big issue. With dealing with people who have trauma. So people like to say pain is caused by, it's multifactorial. So there's like a, there's trauma or emotional stress or just stress in there, it's gonna impact your pain. Absolutely sure, but also it doesn't have to, there's no guarantee. You can have a genetic predisposition which can impact your pain experience or not. We don't really know, and we've got a lot of people that have been through a lot of trauma and they don't respond to pain treatment very well or they did respond to it well, and it, there's no correlation. It's just that when you're in clinic, when you're looking at a clinical population, a lot of them, yeah, it's really easy to match up the dots. But if you looked at the general population, how much trauma they have and how many of them don't have lower back pain or don't have fibromyalgia or don't have a frozen shoulder, then you'll find probably a lot of the time the same numbers, I think. But we get really caught up with kind of attributing persistent pain to psychological trauma. At the Helen Bamber Foundation, I was part of the medical team. I was brought in by the GP who said, can you do some pain management training for the pain? Because we have clinical psychologists for these amazing survivors of torture who have made it to the UK and are seeking asylum. And they get clinical, like they go on a wait list for the clinical psychologists there who do a certain type of therapy and try to support them to deal with their trauma, their PTSD, like depression, like the horrendous fall of like just being a refugee, much less being a torture survivor. But no one gives them pain management and they all have like back pain, knee pain and blah, 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 blah. Some of it from torture, actual torture. This is the result of an injury from tortures. A lot of them have widespread pain. They have, you know, diabetes and, and kidney failure and other things which cause pain. And it's very hard to manage and has nothing to do with the fact they happen to be a refugee and nothing to do with the fact that they have to be a torture survivor who's a refugee or they've been sex trafficked. So I kind of went in from that perspective that, well, what can we do on a day-to-day -day basis for your pain management? I don't care where you got the pain. And that's like, it's one of, I think it's an AA thing originally, but my friend's dad is a psychiatrist said it. Sometimes knowing how you got into the hole does not get you out of it. So I, I would read like things like this about their pain journey or sorry, no, their journey since they came to the UK. The medical appointments, the home office appointments, all these different things they had gone through, um, what they've been, what had happened to them, what they've been done, what they've been accused of. Because if you're trafficked illegally into this country for sex, they often give you fake passports. And then when you get saved, they accuse you of fraud by having it because you have a fake passport, even though you're the person who enslaved you has made you have that. So when you go to a grocery store, open a bank account for them, for even though you're a sex slave, you get charged with that. So therefore, you're not allowed to seek asylum sometimes. It just goes on like that. So you can see where people have fought that and they've gone, no, we didn't ask for this. Like I was forced to sign this and I was forced to go in and take the money that was made off of my body for my <laughs> slave driver to put it in his bank account under my name. But I never used that bank card in my life. It goes on. So I would read all of that and then go, so um, how's your pain? And they'd be like, well, it's when I'm carrying the groceries at home. I just can't make it very far. My lower back kicks off. And you know what? They were never beat in their lower back some of them. Like it's like, or they've got, you know, I had one case out of the ones that I saw and the ones that I heard about, and they were trying to refer them to me where they'd actually been tortured on their feet. So I read a bunch of stuff about foot torture, which is not fun reading. Very good. I, I mean, there's some countries which do really well at the torture. I must say, I learned a lot about the art of torture. Um, on your feet, there's nerve endings and pads there that they don't just go numb after a while. 
it gets worse because you need your feet. So that's how pain works anyway in your body, right? Anywhere where you need it to survive, like your feet or your fingertips or your mouth is twice as painful when you get the finger cut or when you injure your foot, because if you can't walk, you can't survive and eat food and gather and, and hide from predators. So it's all based on this sort of prehistoric pain system. So feet, it, if you keep hurting them and keep torturing them, they keep feeling pain. It doesn't numb out where you would numb out on your arm, you'd numb out on your back. After so many lashes, you numb out. You can't feel anything. It's just raw as you've gone past the skin nociception experience. Um, with feet, there's deeper ones that trigger apparently. So you can keep torturing someone for days on end and months on end on the feet and the pain will never go away and dull. Good to know, eh? Anyway, so we had one of those come through and he couldn't even make it in. So we were doing all this research and like, how can we help him? As it turns out, when he finally did get in and get to see the doctor, they did a whole, like a body, a good old medical. And they found out that he had like a, it was an inflammatory illness, which he took some medication and his foot pain and the swelling in his legs went down and he was saved. He didn't even like, it wasn't because he was tortured on his feet. So there's all these sort of misconceptions that, you know, the trap and, and specifically the torture were automatically going as a torture. I'm like, I've got people that have back pain. They were, they weren't held in stress positions. In fact, they were unfortunately just gang raped. So they had internal and soft tissue damage. They never had the damage that we're looking for to attribute to their pain experience, yet we all do. And then if it's not that we say it's because they were trafficked or because they were tortured. I'm like, well, I dealt with like a bunch of people in South London in the NHS and they all had back pain too. And not very many of them have been tortured as far as I'm aware. They had pretty healthy, normal lives, they even had like nice jobs that weren't too hard labor. They weren't sitting at a desk for 12 hours. They were just normal jobs. Um, so there's a lot of misconceptions. And that is genuine, like by people who do psychology for a living, people who are medical practitioners for a living and they diagnose and they treat and they genuinely believe that pain works that way and only that way. And I'm like, sometimes, sure. But it's the same reason you can get child soldiers out of Africa who've all been traumatized and physically gone through hell in the same way, but they all respond differently. There'll be a high rate of suicide. There'll be a high rate of dysfunction and risky behavior. And then there's people that just come through it and they're so resilient, but they've all been through the same conditions. So to say that that is the way it's going to be, is just not true. And it's really so negative. And I find it, I find it really hard to deal with. I'd be like, Let's talk about ways we can do shopping without carrying too many bags at once. Let's talk about getting you a bus pass so that, you know, a freedom pass. Let's talk about how you're sleeping at night. Let's talk about how you're managing all the other illnesses you have, the type two diabetes, plus the, the kidney condition of blah, blah, blah. Like, so all the other things that are really, really basic that hadn't been checked for these pain patients with Helen Bamber, even though everyone was doing their very best to deal with this horrendous situation. So that, that was the, my weird experience there, kind of dealing with that. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think it's really important what you talked about, the comorbidities of all these other things that yeah. contribute to this whole cycle, yeah. this whole experience of pain. It's incredible. I feel like we could do like an entire series just on the psychology of pain. And definitely. Down for it. <laughs> we definitely, well, let's, let's, we'll mark that on the calendar. Yes, yeah, so a pain, a pain psychology series. And, and the pain being what people put on you, the, how they label you and how they tell you what your pain is from. And I'm like, okay, that's, if, if that's what it's from, great, but what do you think? And then the people that are made to believe it and they genuinely believe that. And when you're working with beliefs, then I'm like, well, I can't take back your sex trafficking. So does that mean I can never help you with your pain? Because that's what we're saying. Because you're sex trafficked, you have this permanent long-term chronic pain. I'm like, no, I mean, we've, other people have gotten better so why can't you and then there's a lot of there's a lot of other weird stuff that goes on too some of the people had um 
pain and then sudden numbness and sort of like midi strokes and they didn't have it. They're calling it, um, it's a neurological dysfunction disorders, but they don't know why. And they do see them more with trauma patients and they do tend to go away. And I read about it, it was a refugee clinic in Vancouver and a woman there, a doctor wrote a book and they had these sudden seizures and just numbness on parts of their body. And I was like, oh, I saw that at Helen Bamber. Okay, no one told me because I didn't know. And we were referring people off to places and they, some of them thought they were making it up because they would come in in a wheelchair one week because they couldn't walk. But the next week they could, which is very, I mean, that's how pain works too, right? I mean, as my physio said one time, and I really like this because I came in with numbness in a certain, I was like, what is this? What's wrong now? He said, look, your nervous system has options. It can do, if it's upset or dysfunctional or damaged or inflamed or something, it can give you a pain sensation or it can give you numbness or it can give you a tingling. Like it, it just chooses, but they all mean there's something not working when, when there's no reason for it to be happening, but it can do any one of these. And what your body picks is interesting because it's kind of what your brain picks. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, it goes on forever, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so where can people find out more information about like the Helen Bamba Foundation, for example. Okay, I so I know I didn't either. It's just down the road for me, and I was so happy when I stumbled upon it because I was just looking for a place to volunteer when I finished my PhD. I was like, I want to give back now. I'm so tired of doing all these jobs where I don't know if I'm changing anyone's life. And I, I went to school and I want to make an impact. And then instead, it was like the most meaningful work ever was doing this bit of volunteering that they allowed me to do, and it was mind blowing. Um, they. There's a few, uh, you don't, I mean, I just Googled that, Helen Bamber Foundation, amazing. Um, there's also Freedom From Torture in London if you're interested in helping refugees that happen to be survivors of torture as well. But any one of those um, would be good. Do you mean resources to look up for pain information or do you mean for? Yeah, as well. So say if someone's listening or watching this and they're like, right. oh, this really resonates with me. The system isn't working currently as it's no. What? What do I do now? Where do I go? What should I be thinking of? What questions should I be asking my GP, my practitioner, my osteopath, my physiotherapist to yeah. get the right intervention? I think um, I, I get this question a lot when I'm working with people or I'm, I'm lecturing or, and it's, it's hard to put it all in like a five minute answer. And I used to have a stock few that I did. Um, last year I was having, I moved back to Canada quite suddenly because my father passed away kind of suddenly. And then it just went boom, 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 boom. I was like, I need to be here. And during this time when I couldn't go back to the UK, cause I was tying up apparently, you know, like funeral type things and stuff like this. Um, I had to stay in Canada and not work, but I was trying to work long distance. Um, I, all my lectures had to be taken over. It was pretty crazy. But I had some time on my hands and I had a lot of reflection and I was like, I want to do a pain management program with my own sort of spin on it because, you know, I, I want, I want to offer something back and I want to put it in paper and not just randomly teach it or volunteer, but not have a, a structure. So what I ended up doing is I spoke to a lot of pain people in Vancouver, a physio, yoga teacher, um, another pain researcher, stuff like that. And they said, look, you should do a blog or something, or you should go on and do a podcast. And I was like, I'm not good at podcasts. I'm horrible on YouTube. Um, you but, and yes, well, you convinced me that's your doing. Um, I'm very but I, <laughs> well, I did a blog, a thing, and I did a page and a website. Um, and I thought I'll put it on there. And I, I was going to say, I don't use it or do anything with it. Like I did a few blogs on it um, and I set it up because I want it to be a pain site where you can go to. And I 
but I've got it now and I'm going to give you the little thingy for it because that's, I have a whole page on, on pain science and pain information and the best resources in the world. I think I've literally titled it like the best pain resources ever. And it's everything I've ever thought of starting with, if you're new to pain and you want to know how it works and why everything you've been told doesn't seem to resonate and why you still have pain, even though you've done everything right, here are the basic resources to learn about why pain is problematic, how pain works and why we still think we don't know what we're doing. We're trying our best, but we still don't know how to, what to do with it. And then here's the deeper resources and it goes down. And then if you, the very bottom I've got, like if you have the attention span, here is books to read. But before that I have videos to watch all five to 10 minutes length. So I've listed everything and described what they offer and who they're by in my totally informal, personal sort of cursy language, like no fucking around. It's full on blunt. Like this guy's awesome, but he doesn't know shit about that, but that's okay. Watch this if you want to have some fun. So I'll, it's, um, and I, this whole website is based on the fact that I, my whole pain experience has been kind of doing everything wrong. Like I am the walking book of what not to do with pain. That's how I've learned what to do. That's why I'm where I am today is because I've done everything you could do wrong. Like mismanaged it personally, mismanaged it with my doctor, watch other people mismanage it, watch the system mismanage my basic pain, like lower back pain or sciatica with a 23 year old patient should not have been this tricky. It should not have resulted in surgery on the NHS taking time and money. I lost my job. I lost everything. It was, it's just ridiculous. That should have never happened. It should have been better managed by somebody who is professionally responsible for managing jackasses like myself, which I was at that age. I didn't know. So I wrote this, I did this whole website called the bad pain patient and it's kind of what not to do and what I've learned to do instead. And basically it's find your own way do your own thing. But there's one page that's, yeah, the best pain resources ever. And I've written everything down there with links. So you can just click on something. If, you, if I've described it in a way that makes you think, oh, I'll give that one a go. Or she says, start with this one because it's easy and has pictures and you don't have to require like listening too much. It's all there. So that's just www.thebadpainpatient.com. I'll just double check that. Because <laughs> I stopped doing it. I did like four bloggy things on it. Um, yeah, let me just get on. I don't and I wrote personal experiences um, because I thought they were worth sharing because I'm not, I am a pain scientist um, and a pain psychologist, but I'm not just talking out of my ass from all the research. Yeah, the badpainpatient.com. Okay, good, I got it right. So yeah, and I wrote, I think four bloggy entrants on there. One about my absolute horror at seeing like people talking about crumbling spines and imaging and how this means you should have surgery. And I just wrote all about that. And there's like really funny, like, you call them gifts or gifs, whatever. Like I just put ridiculous shit on there. Like it's, it's over the top. I've got like the why I did this because it's very personal and it's very like, but there's a reason behind it. And I, and, and I wrote, a, I think I wrote a little bit of my experience at the Helen Bamber Foundation, a key point being going and working with those pain patients and knowing that their pain, they have physical pain. Well, it's all physical and mental pain. They have pain that they're managing, but they've also got themselves background trauma. And again, one of my favorite experiences and one of the things that inspired me was there was not one, not two, but three different pain clients that were horrified and absolutely like heartbroken for me when they found out that I was over the age of 30 and not married. Wow. They were like, oh my God, Anna. like, oh no, this is horrible. What is going on? And I'm like, you were like sex trafficked from like Sudan. And you're worried about me. Like they, the look of horror on their faces. And this was like, 
I'd say a 32-year-old, a 44-year-old, and a 62-year-old woman. Like there's three different age groups. All three of them were horrified. So now I've got somebody to cook for my wedding once I find a man. <laughs> Apparently they've offered to cook. Like they're like, no, we'll cook everything. It'll be fine. I'm like, okay, awesome. I love, love food. But to see that experience and to see like they, they were genuine. They're not making fun. They weren't, um, they, they'd express horror and shock at finding out like, no, no, you're single. I'm like, it's okay. I'm not dying. I, I, it's okay. It's fine. I'll, I'll find a nice boy. I've had some nice boyfriends for long periods. It's all good. But, um, and that was, so that's cross-generational torture survivors and sex traffic survivors horrified at my personal situation of my experience, not to do with pain, but to do with being not married and over the age of 30. Like they just were worried about my future. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Talk about perspective. Yeah, what a reciprocation, because you're worried about their future and how they- I was like, yeah, like we're almost crying over their experiences. And then they're like, I could see them and they were just like, but if you find someone, I will cook for you, it'll be fine. Because I know my family was back in Canada because we're over in England. I'm like, no, no, that wasn't really the problem. Um, okay. So it's been, um, it was, yeah, truly inspiring, truly amazing. But it's things like that that made me go, I just want to write some of this down somewhere, even if no one looks at my website, because I didn't really tell anyone about it. Um, I didn't ever, it was more for me. It was like therapy, um, especially considering uh, blogs or something. I've never, I'm not good at writing. I thought I'd, I'd talk a lot, but I don't really need to put it down for people to have to read. And I was like, I just spent more time looking for like a pretty picture to go with it. So just to, to sum up my amazement, uh, there's some good stuff out there, isn't there? So that's where I have uh, the best, because I've explained all these paid resources that anyone can go to. If you just read that page, ignore all the other crap go straight to the best pain resources ever. And I've collected like everything I've ever come across, the videos, the articles, the books at the very bottom, because I know most people don't have the time and energy and just the information um, by so many different experts, by people with lived this, uh, blogs by people with lived pain experience who were like a firefighter and they had an injury and then they became a chronic pain patient. And they've since go on, um, what is it, Joletta? Benson or Benton, I think. She's gone on to advocate for patients and the patient perspective um, to, to all these different international pain conferences everywhere. And she writes beautiful blogs explaining about pain and about life and about getting this diagnosis, losing her ability to, to be a firefighter. We need to hear those stories and what she's done instead, because being a firefighter is pretty extreme on the body if you've lived with a really big pain issue, but there's other things you can do um, and finding meaning and stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I know people that do this. So I brought it all together in one page and you just go down and start at the top and stop when you're, you're kind of saturated. When you have enough. That's amazing. And you certainly do it really well because I remember sitting in the lectures and you know you had all the pretty pictures in the lectures too. So yeah. it, 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 it's a common thread that runs through everything that you do. You make it interesting, you make it relevant, and you take away the bullshit. Thank you. I think take away the bullshit is probably like my key most important thing. Um, so that's good because sometimes you get in trouble when you take away the bullshit and you say the word bullshit. So I have to really watch my language when I'm lecturing, but that is my goal because I've had the bullshit and I can read through the bullshit. Now I went to school so I can read through the bullshit and try to discern what is accurate, what's not, what's evidence, what's not. No one else has it. I didn't have the time and energy to do that when I was a pain patient though. No one should have to do that. And all the medical practitioners out there, all you manual therapists, I would like it if you know where my psoas is. I, I don't need you to read science all the time on the psychology of pain. I need you to have accurate, you know, quick, relevant information for yourself and to give to your patients. And that's, they're getting like some people are getting their shit together out there. They're doing it. 
And I'm like, okay, now we just need these all together. Cause I'm not going to give the 75 year old man from South London who used to be like a, whatever, some sort of manual laborer, um, a certain videos you wouldn't, but tame the beast and pain in like less than 10 minutes. These videos are, they're very good for any age group or any gender. They're a nice lay, lay person language and they explain really tricky concepts really well. So I always start with stuff like that. And after that, you can give them maybe a bigger article written by health experts that say why basically no one with back pain needs surgery and why it's a billion dollar industry and why it's still happening and and the consequences of that and in in layman terms not like all these fancy things but i was told i have this i should definitely have a microdisectomy so and that's all out there now it's getting better it's not in one place yet although some of the places that i've the websites that i've mentioned on this page they do their own resources and they're good but i still think they're they're biased um a little bit and they only put the nice ones i'm like i want the crazy ones i want the loud ones i want the patient ones and I want the snappy, funny ones, as well as the really serious, like very academic ones, all in one place. So you can choose whatever way you take in the information, whoever you want to listen to. And that's, it's not done enough yet. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Totally. I want to thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I've not only just learned a ton of new stuff, but it's reinforced stuff that I thought I knew and maybe I thought I wasn't going in the direct, right direction or the wrong direction. And it's just been able to cement some ideas or inspire new ones because now I'm going to go off and do my own research and, and work with patient expectations a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because that to me is, is huge. I don't know what you... Oh, that reminds me. Don't let me forget this. And um, so the best thing I ever heard about working in practice for getting expectations, all these thoughts and like fluffy crap all at once really quickly is the Stanford five, which I'm pretty sure I lectured on a load and, and it's not emphasized enough. They need to do like a research paper on this. And when I phoned them and emailed the secretary, I'm like, do you have a list of this and a paper it's produced? And she's like, no, I'm like, but it says in this book that you guys use it and everyone in the clinic has to use it because they've said you have to, and you can't accept anyone until you've asked these five questions. And I don't know them off by heart but basically they collect i mean it's like what you have them Good. i use it because of you i now use it because these five little questions collect all the information that you might have according to like a normal you know um access sort of uh what is it called when you you're inputting somebody um you're knitting them or treating them for the first time it gives it a lot of history but it gives you the other questions that you might miss such okay. as so yeah do you have them, them? Yes. Yeah, so read them off. By Stanford Pain Management Clinic. Again, let me know if these are the correct ones. But so these are five questions clinicians have to ask all patients. Um, and it says cause is the first one. Uh, you ask the patient. Start yeah. off and keep talking because I'm just reading from them. Yeah, but the first one, you ask the patient, what do you believe is the cause of your pain, right? Yep. Is... Um, the second one is meaning. Yeah. What does the pain mean to you? And this is where they might say, well, it means I don't get to work. It means I can't look after my kids. It means I don't get to do activities I love. And you never know what that answer is gonna be, but you wanna know why they're there. They're not there just because of pain, they're there because they can't work or they can't climb anymore, or they can't run or they can't move. Sorry, continue. The third one is impact. Yep, again, and that's when they'll get really specific. They're not there just because, like some of them are there because they can't work, but some of them are there because they've lost their entire ability to do their social life and to go out and to do stuff like that. And they'll tell you, like, that also gives you their goals and why they're motivated to change your pain. 
Because I mean, for me, I remember it was I couldn't work. But later on, it was like, well, now I want to manage my pain better because I want to wear heels again. I want to be able to go out and stand in a bar for more than two hours. I want to go out and see my friends. I'm not going to do a tough mutter, but I want to be able to go to the park and play frisbee or something silly and a picnic. And I couldn't do that. And that was, so that's how it impacted me. And it sounds stupid, but there's no forms that ask, can you wear heels anymore? No one asked that. As a woman, do you know how many weddings and birthdays you have to go to without heels? And if you're kind of hobbity and stumpy like me, you want to wear heels. It's not, it's not funny wearing ballet shoes. And if you're not wearing heels, how are you going to get married? Exactly. How am I going to find a husband if I'm not wearing heels at these beautiful <laughs> wedding parties? And anyway, so yeah. Okay. So that's three. So the fourth one is goals. Yeah. And again, we, you, I see that asked on a lot of like admission and sort of initial assessment forms. But if you've got the why behind the goals, which you have because of those other three questions, real nice setup then, then it really makes sense. Yeah. And then the last one is treatment. Yeah. And it's asking the patient there, what treatment do you think you need? Because as a manual physician, like a manual practitioner, if they're coming in for their treatment with you and they really think the only thing that's going to work is surgery or injections, then you are wasting a lot of time and energy and money and so are they. And you really need to have that conversation. Like, so do you think, have you been told that injections would be helpful or have you been told you're a candidate for surgery? You have that conversation then instead of them going, yeah, okay, that's great. Thanks. But when am I going to get my surgery at the end of it? Or I'll do this because it's the only way I can get to my having my surgeries. I have to try physio first or some sort of osteo first. Knowing that completely would change how you worked with them. Not to mention the first, you know, the questions before that, but all of that builds a picture, which if you miss any of those, I think you're, you're, you're dropping the ball. So I don't care what format you do them in. And I know some of those are on initial assessment forms. What are your goals? Um, what are your beliefs on this? Well, no, we don't ask what your beliefs on that. But again, asking the patient, what do you think this pain is the cause of your pain? And if they say, well, I think it's because I'm really stressed and I work too long hours and I've developed this back pain. It's not going to go away until I change my job and my lifestyle. You need to know that because then you're saying whatever happens between, you know, with you, it doesn't matter unless they quit their jobs. And that's not a minor belief. That's a massive belief that is a major barrier for their rehabilitation program with a physical therapist. I mean, you, you might as well not show up then. That's when you're like, well, then go talk to the psychologist then dude or a life coach to get your job and career sorted. But at least knowing that you can then stop trying to like give them all the information you would and, and just get at those right away because those beliefs are insane. You have, some of them are like, I've had my MRI. I've been told there's no damage. I've been told I need to do this. But if you ask them and push them a bit more, they're like, well, I think this really, I really think I do have a tumor somewhere. I think that, I think it's a tumor. I don't know what else. I mean, everything else worked. And they think they have a tumor in their spine still or they haven't had their MRI or any sort of imaging and they think they need imaging and it's all useless to do anything else. They just need the imaging. That will all come up with those five questions. And those are all like not minor barriers, but massive barriers to any sort of treatment um, adherence or treatment response that's or, or physical outcome that's, that's works. So yeah, think about time and money you could save. Absolutely. And can I just say how much that has had an impact on the way I treat it? Because I remember sitting there in, in the lecture at PCOM and, you know, it was one slide or it was a couple of slides and, and in true fashion, you did talk a lot about it um, in a good way. <laughs> Gosh, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, no, it's fine. I do talk a lot. And I remember thinking, oh, I recognize some of this from my psychological background, but I'd never thought how to bridge that with the manual therapy, with the osteopathy. Exactly. And nobody's telling me this. It's like, I've got like five years in mental health. I've got another four years in, in, in 
osteopathy, how do I connect these two things together? Because they're inherently connected. Yeah. And you kind of need them to move forward with a pain patient specifically. I mean, these would be great to ask a cancer patient or a cardiovascular disease patient, but with pain, it is so, because we have so many different treatments and there's so many different beliefs because it's something we can't see. So it's twice, it's twice as important to cement those down. So I am overwhelmed and so freaking happy to hear that you're actually using them. Um, my department to start using them, like on oh, patient intake. I'm like, can we yeah. just give them? Because they have to fill out forms anyway. I'm like, can I know. We another form in there because we ask them about their goals, but usually, I'm sorry, but we have 30 minute appointments. Yeah. How, you can't, that would take no. an hour just to ask. And sometimes they say, like, it's impacting my life and that I can't work, blah, 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 blah. But if you don't ask them what their goals are, like, you need both of them, right? If you ask them what the goals are, the goals are, well, I just want to get by and look after my kids. They don't need to go back to work or they don't need to do wear heels. They don't need to do all these other crazy things sometimes. Sometimes they just need to get by. Like, because they'll say, I've lost everything. I can't do this. Like, my whole life is upside down. But if you ask them what they really want, it's just like, I just want to maintain and like get to a place where I can get to work for like a few hours a week or something. All of that is completely impacts what you're going to do with them next. And I, I don't, I, I wish it was more published and it's a Stanford pain clinic, which is they've nailed a lot of this stuff. The papers that come out of there, the people that work there, Steve Mackey or whatever his name is there. I've, they're amazing. And this just makes sense to me because we don't want to ask fluffy questions, but if you just ask them, what do you, what do you, what is the pain? Like, what do you think the pain is from? How often do you ask that? Never. We tell you where the pain is coming from. And sometimes patients might get mad at you and go, well, you tell me that's why I'm here. But it's just like, we do ask them now, like, so what have you been told so far? Because we know there's so many freaking stories that the GP would have mentioned, their friends, their other friend who's a friend of a physio, uh, that thing they saw on TV by doctor, whatever. They definitely say with lower back pain, it's definitely this. And you're just like, Jesus. So yeah, um, unbelievable. And I really do think it would just be so easy. It's just a few questions. You're already asking some of them, but if you just like, you know, just before the goals one, just ask them like what, how, what impact it's had on them. And that opens the whole conversation about stuff that you don't want to be picky at. You don't want to say, so how has this changed your life and your lifestyle? But you just ask them about impact. They know exactly what to tell you. Like, I can't do this. I can't do that. This is gone. So, yeah. And conversely, have you had um, patients or patients, I suppose, if you want to call them that, um, come in and not be able to ask them? Because I've, yeah. I've asked, you know, what are your goals from, from treatment? And I get this blank look either because they've never been asked before or they're exactly. not relating it to anything. Yeah. And so if you ask them how it's impacted your life first and then say, well, what are your goals here today or with us or with me, then it makes sense because you just told them what everything's screwed up. And then you say, my goal is just to have this not as screwed up or this back to semi-normal. I'd love to have my, my old life back. Then it makes sense. But you're just asking what are your goals? And it's like to not be in pain, to not be here. Like, what do you think my goals are? Like, I'd like my life back, please. But if you prerequisite by like, can you tell me about the specifics that have been impacted? Then you don't seem like such an asshole. Like, it's like, if you did that in psychology and like a, like a mental health thing, you're like, what are your goals? I'm like, well, not to be depressed and not to have to pay money. So I don't feel suicidal because somebody thinks I'm suicidal. Now I have to do this, even though my life is really stressful and I have good reason to be depressed. Like you wouldn't just do that, but we do that with physical patients and they're just like, Jesus. Yeah. And you can feel like, oh, this is the ticking another box and your goals. I would just like, I don't know how many times I was asked that. And then when they don't ask anything, they're just like, this is what we're going to do. You're like, do you even know? Yeah. So it's all really important. Can I please fly you over when we're allowed to travel again? Yeah. Everything has calmed down and just get you in my department and just talk 
to people, not just the clinicians, but the patients, because I feel like that's, yeah. the, that's the link that's missing, is if yeah. you are able to demonstrate and deliver this type of intervention, the patients will get better, or they'll have a better understanding of what's going on. If they know what's going on in your side too. This is why I love, and I'm a massive advocate of any peer-led interventions, because, I mean, and when I left, there's, I talked to some of the best pain interventions, clinical psychologists are running the best pain interventions in England at the British Pain Society Conference. And they were saying, what we're doing now is we have me and a tutor. The tutor is a pain patient and they're bringing them in. So they're both leading the course. So it's not the Stanford Pain Management Program, which is only peer-led, which means you have to spend a lot of time training them on techniques and exercises and presenting. And it's very by the book, which is awesome. I've done that one, the expert pain patient thing in England. Fantastic, I really enjoyed it. We don't always have time and energy for that. And to be honest, I think half the time people will look to the clinician, the white coat to say, is this true? And then they hear it from the pain patient like, oh, okay, so he's not talking shit or, he, he's really saying that for a reason. He's not just doing it because that's what they always say to patients. If you have the two of them, you're double whammying everyone. And that's what you need. I need to talk to pain patients and go, by the way, when you go in there and tell them you think it's never going to change, they get stressed and worried. Or when you say, oh, this is the way my body acts and this is it. Then they're like already rolling their eyes and going, oh, another chronic pain patient who just is their label. They're, they're identifying with their pain too much. And I'm like, oh, no, just so you know, when you express yourself like that, they think you're a wanker. They think you're identifying with pain too much, which may be accurate for sure, but it doesn't help anyone. And why wouldn't you identify with your pain if everything else in your life has been wiped away? Tell me that, right? And I, I need to, yeah, you need to speak to both. You need both sides. So how that unfolds and is structured, I don't know yet, but I think more of these peer interventions is good, but it's, I can train the patients as much as you like, but if we're gonna keep encountering assholes, like people who are rude, insensitive, and just judgmental as practitioners, and they're the gateway to all our healthcare, then we're still stuck there too, aren't we? I mean, I have to tell pain patients, okay, when you go in, don't smile too much. I tell my mom, mom, tell them your knees hurt. Like, don't just go in there and say everything's fine to the, neuro like the neurologist. And she basically has like arthritis and fibromyalgia. But it was undiagnosed. So she's like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, mom, tell the doctor and tell them your worst case scenario. But then some people like, oh, another pain patient was there. Like their worst stories are catastrophizing. But you don't, it's such a mismatch. So you're absolutely right. Everyone needs this information. I'm not sure yet. Um, I love what you're doing though. By, by you doing this, it's one more thing that people could maybe stumble upon and go, oh, there are resources out there. Oh, and she wrote a page for it. But so did a lot of other people, and that will hopefully spread. Well, part of my sort of idea of this is just to talk to people smarter than me. So in the hopes that one, I'll observe the clever guy. intelligence, and two, people get exposed to different ways of thinking because, yeah. and one thing that I want to come back to is, is how we do this is, um, I used to work at the, in, in Suffolk, in East of England, and uh, part of their induction, I would work in mental health, and part of their induction, they would have former patients come and talk to us on the induction. Awesome. Just genius. I, was, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I was like, no. oh my God, I have oh. to be here three hours. But actually, listening to their story, listening to how they entered services, what their experience of the services were, and yeah. what they would have liked yeah. instead or to come out of it, mm -hmm. huge. And it, it does mean now we're listening to patients news. And now after 20 years, when I walk into a pain conference, I mean, cause five or six years ago when I was studying, they, I wasn't a doctor yet. So they're like, mm, you don't have your, your PhD yet. So you don't count. Fair enough. 
Um, but I did have lived experience, but I felt like I wasn't allowed to share it. And when I, my last pain conference before I left the UK at the British Pain Society, I went in and I went in for a psychologist specialty training group pre the day before the pain conference. And I kind of wanted to see what was going on. And I was delighted to see that everything they were teaching and, and talking about, I knew and I was familiar with and I was comfortable with and I was advocating. I was like, yay. But when we sat around that group, I talked to people that were being asked to run and open up and start like fibromyalgic pain services, chronic widespread pain services, major pain services, and all these different sort of NHS units. And I'm like, I'm just a, you know, a no one. And I went around and I said, well, I've done this, this, and this, and this is what I'm hoping to do. And it, I was the very last person. So I felt super intimidated. And the leader of the group went, well, sounds to me like you're the most expert here, actually. And it was all because I said, well, I, I have been the pain patient technically for 20 years, but this is what I've learned so far. And I was just like, thank you. He could have been just being really nice. He's just a good clinical psychologist, to be honest, but he made me feel good. But he also made me have the confidence to then speak up, offer advice and information, not just from my personal experience, but from my research, because I saw, I've seen it being backed up in real life. This is a lived experience. And I don't want to give that to everyone. I don't want everyone to live through pain, but I'm sure as hell sick and tired of people without having any pain in their lives, then tell me what to do and why I'm a bad pain patient. I'm like, I know I'm a bad patient. I can say that. You can't say that though because you haven't done anything more than sprain your ankle during rugby. So yeah, come back and talk to me and you can't walk or have sex at the age of 24. Then tell me how well you're functioning. Oh, and you lose your job too. Oh, and you're in a foreign country. Oh, and you're dependent on your boyfriend for the first time, although you've always been financially independent. Like any of those things. And that's just one person's experience. But I take that and I apply it to everyone I meet. I'm like, what's your shit story? Like, what's your shit storm? Because um, I know it's there. It's just not recorded in any of the documents when they go in for the lower back pain assessment. No. So, yeah, anyway. Okay, so we can do this. We're gonna change the world. You're gonna keep doing this and spreading it. Um, you can roll me out. I'll answer questions to random strangers. We'll zoom you in where we have to because zoom people me need to know stuff. People need to know this. They uh, do. And there's not much I won't talk about from personal experience, but I have now have the academic training to back it up. So I'm really happy to have that conversation. If we don't want to talk about personal experiences, let's just talk about the, the research. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm all good with the personal. I mean, I'm in therapy. I'm, I'm, you know, I do all of that. I love it. Yeah, no, my therapist is great. She's, <laughs> I mean, I talk to my pain client, my pain coach, and she's got a psychotherapist. She's got a psychiatrist as well. And I'm like, have you talked to your psychiatrist about your pain and your identity, what you're telling me that you feel that everything's been changed and taken away from you? And she's like, no. I'm like, it's a full-blown psychiatrist. Ask him. Tell him what you're thinking. It's, you don't have to just tell me. This is, we need to be talking about this. But she just thought it wasn't relevant because it's just physical. Exactly. So. A lot of disconnects. So yeah, let's at least keep connecting up the dots, I guess. Yeah. Even and, if it's a bit. To bring you on to talk more because we probably talked for hours at this point. But I, oh my I, gosh, this is no. But this is just me warming up. I feel I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm you know, I'm even more excited to ask you questions, and and we could be here for for for, for another couple of hours and still not run out of things to talk about. Well, anytime. And I think these like, just having more of these conversations is good. Uh, more than because someone's gonna it's gonna hit someone in the right place at the right time somewhere because it is a bit of a crapshoot I mean you could not have told me this stuff at different times in my life uh, you could not have given me mindfulness when I was a pain patient I wouldn't have just like walked out I would have like thrown the grape at you and then just gone what do you know I hate you all like that's what I felt like I felt punchy when I was a pain patient I never felt sad or depressed I was very angry and stabby is what we call it 
never did anything, but man, I just sit there and just be like, how do you not want to kill people right now? Because everyone here is pissing me off because I was in pain all the time. And you're sleep deprived. And oh, so you're, deprived. You're, you're, you're hungry. You have not had sex. You, you know. And then you gain weight. Um, so you lose your body. And then people tell you like, oh, careful. Like I, whenever somebody gets touchy about a pain patient with weight, and that's why your knees hurt. And that's why your back hurts. You're not going to get better till you lose your weight. I'm just like, do you want someone to commit suicide? Is that what we're aiming for? Have we got a target like to like tip someone over the edge right now? So. The amount of times I've heard this, not just from tutors, but from other practitioners, it's like, yeah. well, you know, if you lost a little weight, it would make mm -hmm. your knee issue, you know, less. I'm like you cannot, you can't. And there's actually not a lot of evidence supporting it, even though it makes sense that more weight on a weight bearing issue would be more problematic. Nerves don't really give a shit. They take skinny, skinny, skinny heroin addicts and give them pain and in the knees, even though there's no body there. And sure, it might change some people, but it might not. You could lose all that weight and still have lower back pain. I was skinny as hell when I got back pain and leg pain. Like it's, um, but I know, I know logically it makes, you know, intuitively it makes sense. I just don't think the research is there. Yeah. I'm happy to read it if you have it though. Absolutely happy to read it. No, I'm an advocate of, I do not lecture people on BMI, body shape, because I've had that for years and that was never helpful for someone to tell me to lose nope. weight because the psychological ramifications of someone telling me to lose weight because I was in pain was yeah. far worse than just getting someone to move and not having that that weight, literally, yeah. but that psychological weight saying, you're too big, you're going to be in pain until you lose the weight. Yeah. So it's damaging. And also it's, it sounds logical, but it is actually damaging. It's not just like not helpful. It's actually damaging. And again, it's not that pain patients are psycho. All humans are psycho. I never forget about the heart disease and how I think the quotes I put on one of my slides for sure is how everyone is told when they have like a heart attack that you have to change how you eat and how you exercise and how you live. Only one in seven who are told they will die unless they change their natural lifestyle ways are able to change their behavior. So one in seven, and they're told they will die unless they change it. They still struggle with it, not because they're assholes and stupid and lazy and, you know, or they need it, but because it's complicated and it's not that simple and it's really hard to change behavior. Hence, we have whole behavior change industries now, because if it was that simple and you were threatened with death, surely you would eat and exercise differently. So telling a pain patient, it's just, it's not them even, it's all people with all illnesses. We have a really hard time changing our habits. And to do that, while well, you already are lacking willpower and motivation to live is is not just um unhelpful it is truly damaging and i've seen more damage done by that than i even want to they they could write a report on it but the suicide rates are up for pain patients so that just shows right there it's not a it's not a, it is a matter of life and death but the opposite way if you keep telling that they're gonna yeah they're gonna keep tipping over and lose all hope and faith so yeah. I think as an industry, we just need to get more educated, more yeah. people. And, and move past it. Like, if it's not helpful, then don't do it. Don't waste your breath on it. Don't waste I mean, it's not like they haven't heard it before. It's not like they don't look in a mirror on TV and see that they're not the perfect body weight anyway. So it's just a waste of time. And everyone, and you know all your colleagues that say it, they're not assholes. No. They're genuine human beings who are literally working in a helping career and vocation. And uh, so they don't they need to be told that actually this is damaging. It's not because people are, are lightweights because it doesn't work. Our brains don't function that way. It's like saying, don't eat cake. Don't, don't think about pink elephants. We really, we do go the other way.
Yeah. So yeah. And listen to Anna Howarth, Dr. Anna Howarth, if you have <laughs> more evidence. We have tons of evidence. We can go over the evidence. I could bore you to death with the evidence, paper after paper after paper. But yeah. Gaga says, rain on me. Rain on me. Meanwhile, like, just do what you need to do. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for joining me today and educating me and inspiring me because you constantly do that. And you make wow. me want to read more, learn more and be a better practitioner. So thank you so much. For that. Oh, okay. Massive privilege, massive pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, if I have any effect in any of those ways you just mentioned, awesome. Absolutely awesome. Then I've, I've kind of, it makes my day. So thank you. <laughs>